0: Most people, even those familiar with his classic, do not realize that Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, aside from all of its history and politics, is a masterpiece of spiritual writing. The most famous of his three volumes is The Inferno, an account of Dante's journey through the underworld, where he sees the horror of sin firsthand. Join us as we speak with Father Paul Pearson about his recent book on spiritual direction from Dante, Volume 1, Avoiding the Inferno. You're listening to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Father Paul Pearson was ordained to priesthood in 1985 and serves as Dean of St. Philip's Seminary, run by the Oratorians in Toronto. Father Paul, welcome to New Books and Christian Studies. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, Father Paul, what first sparked your interest in Dante? What circumstances led you to write these books?
1: I've always been interested in Dante. I studied him as an undergrad. I was in a great books program in, in Iowa. And um, I always found it to be really compelling as an author and insightful as a psychologist. Very insightful. I wasn't really so into the Christian message back then, I have to admit. But, <laughs> that, uh, but, but his insight into human nature was was so good that that is what caught my attention first. And then I as I gradually continued my studies, I was... Be- Became a medievalist and I did my master's thesis on 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 Dante. And um, that made me appreciate the structure of it more and the, the skill in which he actually did it. But the, the actually um, the thing that got me from writing these books was I started teaching a Dante class on the Inferno to my seminarians here at St. Philip Seminary. And I re- I thought that they, they really didn't know how about how to read a book like, like scripture that was filled with analogies and allusions and metaphors. And they were really struggling with that. And I thought that's getting going to get in the way of their future as, as um, people who are reading scripture or reading any great literature. And so I thought, you know, Dante would be a good introduction for them. So we started this Dante course where we actually read the work aloud and just stopped every few lines and commented. And the combination of being able to hear the Dante and to talk about it a little bit at a time became very addictive. And so when we finished Inferno, they said, so next semester, can we start Purgatorio? And so this started this process of going through Dante, which I've been doing now for almost, well, now for 30 years, I guess.
0: The Inferno is normally the only required canticle in schools and often leaves a skewed impression of what Dante is trying to accomplish in the comedy, as well as a misunderstanding of the Inferno itself. Give us your approach. What is Dante's message in The Inferno?
1: Well, I think, yes, as you said, it's part of a divine comedy. And if you, for people who know a little bit about the history of drama, dramas are either comedies or they're tragedies, usually. And a, a, what makes a comedy a comedy is it starts off in a mess. And somehow, usually through some sort of special intervention, that mess sort of unravels itself and turns into something really quite wonderful, and you end up with singing and dancing at the end. Uh, for me, the great example of that is the Pirates of Penzance, which has you know all, all this complicated reason why why um, Frederick can't leave, and uh, but and finally it turns out you know it's all solved, and he is able to marry Mabel, and it's all fine. Well, in the same way, the Divine Comedy begins with a mess, and Inferno is really just the mess, and if that's the only part of the comedy that you actually read, then you think that the message is primarily, primarily about life is a mess, life is filled with suffering, but that's not really the point at all. The point is, look at where we can get ourselves if we get off track, but you're, you're not called to that, you're called to something else, and Dante is taken on this trip through hell so that he'll turn away and transform his life, because he's made for something far greater than that. So hell is a really an object lesson of, of what sin does to us not just what sin will do to us at the end of time that's not really the point 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 is what sin is doing to us right now and that right now we're sort of self-sabotaging our happiness and what Dante's descriptions of of the punishments of sin and hell are are really just the sort of personifications of the damage that sin does to us in in real time right now and that if we're going to work for our happiness we have to be willing to to fight through these battles, but it begins with recognizing the damage that sin causes in us.
0: It's easy to think of sin only in terms of an outward deed that was done, but the idea that it has a power to misshape our souls and lives is a profound thought.
1: But I think it fits with reality, too. Sometimes we just find ourselves in situations situation and think, how did I get here? And that's really exactly where Dante begins. He's lost in a woods, a dark woods, and he's, he can't even figure out how he got lost. it's, it's just happened by degrees, um, and all of a sudden he finds himself to be profoundly lost. And it, it's, it's sort of overwhelming to him, and it's overwhelming in part because he doesn't know the way out, but in part because he doesn't really know how he got there in the first place.
0: Tell us about the statement over Hell's entry, that it is a place for those who have lost quote, the good of the intellect. How does this idea relate to human beings made in the image of God? And how does it relate to the various beasts we encounter in the terraces of the inferno?
1: Everybody is called to live his life according to reason, not just because, as you were saying earlier, that because that's the set of the rules and you're going to have to obey the rules if you want to get the reward, but because that's the way we're made. And if you don't live according to the way you're made, you'll end up doing damage to yourself. It's like reading the instruction manual when you get a new piece of equipment. If you don't follow the instructions, the warranty is going to be voided. <laughs> and uh, and for us, our creator, our maker, gives us the, the instruction manual, and that instruction manual is really his commandments. It's not a set of obstacles or challenges for us, so much as it is a description of the way we are. And so when I sin, I'm actually going against my own nature. And, so, and that is the good of the intellect, following the way in which I'm as a human as a creature made and i'm not supposed to be following my instincts only i'm supposed to be following intellectual principles I'm supposed to be following what i know to be true to the best judgment of my conscience and in the very first circle of hell the circle of the neutrals you have all these people who are just being whipped around by the wind following whatever flags are happening following whatever trends are going and they, aren't, they aren't, don't have their own intrinsic principle of guidance. They're just following whatever happens to be in front of them. And I think that picture of um, people without principles, people without a rudder, any sort of sense of direction, is shocking, but also profoundly modern. Um, so many people just don't have any sense of a direction in their lives at all. And I think so. Dante really wants to begin with this idea that somehow we're supposed to be people with purpose. We're supposed to be people who have principles and who live our life according to those principles, not according to our our instincts or purely upon our emotions. To the extent that we fall away from that through sin, we end up turning ourselves away from that, that um, image of God into something which is more animalistic. And as you were saying, each each diff- the different levels have different beasts that are in charge of them, and they become more and more beastly less and less like you'd expect a human being to be. At the beginning, they actually have some ability to to speak. As they get further down, they don't speak, they growl, they eat dirt. Giants and Titans are are mutes and just bold bugles whenever they get upset, and Satan doesn't do anything at all. Um, He just chews and drools and cries, and um, really almost like an automaton. Um, So we see this sort of dehumanization that goes on as you go further and further down. And that dehumanization is part of Dante's message. This is what we're doing to ourselves. You know, there's, there's something special in each one of us. And look how we're, how we're degrading it.
0: The good of the intellect reminds us of Aristotle's telos. Human beings have a goal to pursue. God created us to know and have fellowship with him. If we live only for the appetites and passions for sensuality and food, then he could have just as well made us cocker spaniels instead of human beings. Yeah. And so there's a sense where hell is for those who have despised or discarded the very reason why they were given souls and intellect.
1: But I think, and most people do have the experience of once they, make it, although it's pleasurable to give ourselves to these things temporarily, that as soon as you do, you feel as though you've lost something. You feel as though you've lowered yourself. And often that's why people don't tell the truth about these things. because they they can't really admit it to others and they can't even admit it to themselves that they've lowered themselves to this. And I I think we do do have an instinct for that. Uh, Modern society is getting better and better at covering up that instinct, (laughs) but uh, making excuses for it, but it's there. And so I think Dante is really touching something that we all have this sense of it. I can really lower myself. And there are times when I really let myself down, when I disappoint myself and everybody around me, So I think that's that's part of that good of the intellect, too, is that um, I'm called to something bigger. And in fact, I'm called to something way beyond the good of the intellect, as we'll get to in paradise. Because of the good of the intellect, I can be called to something infinitely greater. And uh, so the good of the intellect is just the beginning. Uh, Here in the Inferno, we're really talking pretty much on natural terms, that sin destroys us as human beings, But then as we get out of hell and into purgatory, we begin to see the possibility of human nature once it's in the presence of God's grace and the gifts of God, Um, because there's something far more than just that image of God that's possible for us.
0: The church proper begins in the second canticle, the purgatorio. But we have a hint of that in a reference to Christ's harrowing of hell, where Rahab, who is an image of the church in the rich theology of the early church fathers... She's the first to be rescued. But in the Inferno, there really is no sense of community at all.
1: The, the, yeah, the, this, the sense of, of people being isolated is really overwhelming. It's so different once you get to purgatory, because the people there are all together. You get this wonderful sense of community. You really want to be with these people. Um, and they stop and rejoice with one another. They pay attention to one another. Uh, they're just so amazingly charitable. Yeah. And... That is really uh, an enticing thing, but the the uh, Christ's presence in hell is really quite interesting because Virgil had gone down to the pit of hell earlier, just after he arrived, um, according to the story, and now this is the second time down, so he thinks he knows the way, but a lot of the geography has changed because there was that big earthquake at the time of Christ's uh, crucifixion, and that actually changed the geography of hell hell trembled at the divine love, and its walls came tumbling down. And because of these rock slides in hell, Dante is able to make his pathway down. He's actually following in a pathway that Christ's crucifixion actually made possible. So even in hell, you see the undeniable effects of Christ's winning our salvation.
0: And then there's the timing of it all, following the Easter liturgy, so that Dante ascends out of hell and makes it to the Mount of Purgation on Easter morning following the resurrection of Christ. He brings so many different layers together in this amazing work.
1: Every once in a while, you think, you see a, a strand that you think he's woven in, and you think, oh no, he can't have woven strand number 14 in, can he? And you realize, yes, he can. <laughs> um, you, you think back to like at a Gothic cathedral where all the little bits of tracery join together and come together and you think, the architect thought of all of this or St. Thomas Aquinas and his Summa and all the different parts of it fitting together, and he's like, Dante thought like that. He thought like a Gothic architect, and his work is architecture. I did my master's thesis on the fact that there's a lovely word, smarire, to, to be lost, that appears there in the first canto. It also appears in the middle canto of Purgatorio, when Dante is blinded by the light. And it happens when he's lost in the glory of God in the last canto of Paradiso. And I thought, more than a coincidence? The answer is, no. Nah. It's, a, uh, it's, um, it is uh, Dante's plan.
0: I'm still waiting for someone to find his notebooks. How
1: can, I, <laughs> how can you contain all of these things in your mind? No idea. The, the, the medievals, I think, were, they were tra- their memories were trained differently, and they thought so synthetically like this. they constantly layering things. And I think that's really fine authors these days can still do it to some extent, but my goodness, you read Dante and you think did you have a computer or something? Um, I mean, he didn't even have many books. I mean, books were a rare thing in 1320. Um, We're we're talking about somebody who's doing this out of his head. It's hard even to read it like that without turning to books let alone to write it. So it really is just this amazing thing. And it's not just his knowledge of things like scripture, which is I'm constantly seeing new echoes that I haven't seen before. Like I read something from scripture, think, oh, he used that. And I didn't see it the first time I read the Dante, but now it's so clear and it makes perfect sense. Or it might be mythological things. It might be um, scientific things. Um, I'm always fascinated by the fact that when Dante is climbing out of hell at the end, as they're going climbing down Satan's body, they have to switch and spin around and start climbing up. And he thinks he's going back into hell, but it's that he's past the center of the earth. And he's always showing off his astronomical knowledge, too. He gives us the dates and times of things by telling us the positions of the stars. It's really a tour de force. But the thing that ends up impressing me most is just how much he understands about being a human being. Mm -hmm. And he rips through the, the preconceptions about that. I think that's hit me most when I was reading him in my first year of grad school. Um, And I was reading the section on the suicides, and I just had a a professor of mine who committed suicide, and I was thinking about it very vividly. And I thought, why didn't she speak to us? Why didn't she talk? And when Dante talks about how the suicides really can only communicate through their bleeding, I thought there was something really profound there about how somehow there's an inability to communicate, how they're cut off. And somehow they think that they'll be able to get their point across by their suffering. Who talks that way? I mean, in the 20th century, we we can make sense of that. But to write that in the the 14th century, I know psychologists who just think that that canto is brilliant. Um, And I I think it is, too. So for me, it was the the clear perception of what makes us tick and what makes us crack that I think was, was so impressive to me. That's why I decided to write this book called Spiritual Direction from Dante, because I think so often we're so impressed with all these layers of meaning, we can get distracted by them. But in fact, I think he means this as to be accessible to everyday Christians. We're saying, I want to be better. I want to follow the commandments. I want to be with Christ. How do I do that? How do I do that? And I think he really does view himself in that sense as an everyman, and and he wants us to go on this journey with him and to take it personally. So I I think there's so much there that um, people really could benefit from. Because not everybody's going to have a spiritual director around who can answer questions like that. But Dante's filled with important information and, and insights that I think anybody would benefit from.
0: Dante's comedy grows with the reader. For example, in Canto Five, there's plenty to glean from Francesca and Paolo. They, they were reading French chivalric literature, which led to the affair and their demise, and that's a good lesson. But then, after one has read St. Augustine's Confessions, you go back and read Canto Five, and you realize there's an allusion to Augustine's conversion. After reading a passage in Romans, he didn't need to read any more that day. And so there's irony. Uh, two different kinds of reading that lead to two different ends. I find that reading the Divine Comedy introduces me to so many other authors and so much other literature.
1: He's, he's such a Renaissance man in, in that way, isn't he? He, just, he seems to have his finger on so many things. And I'm so impressed with the breadth of his knowledge and how he's assimilated it all. It's not just that he has a bunch of facts. It's all just become sort of the part of the, the, the network of his, of his thought and of his reactions.
0: Another point worth bringing up, especially for new readers, Dante as a character in the story grows in his own spiritual understanding. So his perspective within the narrative early on isn't always what the reader is to come away with. For example, back to Francesca and Paolo, he swoons in sympathy with their plight.
1: Yeah. And, and that's not necessarily how we as the reader should be feeling. No, but I think it's important to see that that is so often our reaction. Right. You know, we hear about somebody who's done something wrong. We think, oh, poor things. Oh, our, uh, that's, oh I, f- I feel for them. But, and yes, that's, it's, it's sort of a function of our lack of growth that we, that we, uh, oh, I wish we should keep compassion, but we, that we somehow get carried away with that and lose our principles and perspective. Um, yeah. Virgil's pretty strict on about that. Oh, come on, Dante, you're such a wimp, you know, have a backbone, you know, stand up, come on, let's go. And, um, finally when he smacks somebody who's trying to climb into the boat when they're going across the river he says oh indignant soul good for you you know and he really cheers him on because finally he this is somebody who he could have sympathized with but now he recognizes no this this is a distortion this is the disease this is something which is just deteriorating their personality and their, their holiness the image of God this is not something to be to be played around with and and sympathized with i think i think the interesting thing thing too that i think comes up and gets to a sort of climax in purgatorio is that i'm convinced that not only is dante somebody who grows along the way who, who does develop significantly but even virgil who we often think of as this light of pure reason um changes his tune significantly especially not about everything else but about himself mm-hmm. He's making excuses for himself at the beginning, saying, You know, I'm only here because I was born at the wrong time. You know, I was just unfortunate because I was born before the coming of Christ, and so I'm in limbo. But as time goes on, he begins to recognize, Well, other people who were born at my time ended up in heaven. There must have been something more to it than that. And he begins to recognize that he was entrusted with something really special that he didn't follow through with. And by the time he leaves at the end of Purgatorio, he's come to a new understanding of his own his own life, too.
0: There's a scene where Dante offers a biographical moment where he apparently had broken a a baptismal font, which looked like he was destroying something sacred, but he explains he did so to save a child's life. Yep. I think that was his way of telling readers it's important for us to see as well that even though he is attacking the evils in the church, even putting popes in hell, he really loves the church. And is seeking her life.
1: Oh yeah, I think if, if you read it carefully, I mean, when when he talks about the the need for civil authority and ecclesiastical authority, he's obviously speaking about somebody who loves those structures. And when they're functioning badly, because he knows we need them, he's offended. Sort of like Catherine of Siena going on about the horrors of the church when she she talks about the Pope as the sweet vicar of Christ on earth. <laughs> you know, it's it's when you love something and you see it being hurt all your instincts are there to defend fight back protect and i and i think that's the you know any parent understands that when you see your child being hurt and and you you do anything good to stop that and i think dante has a similar sense of that defending um the bride of christ and so i i think that there, there he's violent in his in his denunciations but he's not any more violent than Peter Damien was or any of the other sort of otherworldly saints um, in denouncing corruption. We're in a, we've are in we always been in a stage where we have to be denying that corruption and, and calling it out. And my goodness, the 21st century is not any different, is it? Mm. Somebody who's training young men to be priests, I'm very aware of the fact that, uh, I was once telling somebody about the various rules about things. I said, what would happen if you didn't follow those rules? And he said to me with his eyes as big as saucers, you'd kill us (laughs) i said said, if that i said if that helps you hold on to it (laughs) and i think dante has a sort of sense you know this is this is something i'm worth i think is worth fighting for and you feel that righteous indignation in him because he's fighting for something he loves
0: there's so many books on dante good books but dealing only with the historical aspects the political aspects your book reminds us that there is a significant spiritual aspect to Dante's Divine Comedy.
1: Well, I think part of it, you know, if you want your book to be a textbook in universities, you're not going to touch on the things that I think are important. You're going to leave those things out because they're they're well, they're very Christian, and you know what do you do? Um, but I think it's what Dante had mainly at heart. He brought all these other things together because he's an artist, and he couldn't help but produce something monumental. But I think all those things matter. I, I think and they're, they're worth reading. And I, and I think that many Dante scholars have done really excellently. Um, but I think they all come to the service of this spiritual
0: message. At the end of the Inferno, Dante gives us an image of Satan that for many readers is unexpected and which is less glamorous than Milton's in Paradise Lost. Can you explain it for us? why frozen in ice instead of burning in fire? Why three mouths? Why does he never speak? And what's going on when Virgil and Dante climb down and then up, Satan's back to escape the inferno?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I love Milton's Paradise Lost. I, was, I used to uh, teach that period of English literature and um, Paradise Lost is a monument, and that speech, the sort of pep talk that Milton gives when they've fallen into the pit of hell, you know, where I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, uh, which I always thought was from scripture, <laughs> but it turns out it was, from, it was from Milton and I just mistaken. Um, it, wonderful. Um, and it, it does show the power of self-deception. And I think that's why Milton is so powerful. It's not because Satan is is in himself glorious, but because, in fact, it's the power that we have of glossing over all the differences. You almost forget that you're in a pit, in a, in a lake that's burning, providing only heat but no light. You forget that you're in that pit of hell because he's speaking so powerfully. And we do the same thing every time we talk ourselves into sin. So I think that's sort of Milton's point. But for Dante, I mean, he sees ice as a much better picture for the most serious sins in part of the way, because it it really sort of shuts down our heart. Um, I remember, um, Frost's fire and ice poem, a little short thing, you know, um, for those who are familiar with passion, you know, fire is good, but for those who know something of hatred, ice is, is a better description and you really do see this sort of hardening in place. Um, We can feel it probably most powerfully through resentments that we hold on to. We just feel them sort of turning it almost into stone. And as you go further and further down in Inferno, the images of stone start coming up. And then as you get down to the pit, all these waters that have been flowing down in waterfalls start freezing. In the same way that we get stuck in our sins if we stay in them too long. The ability to move around, the ability to repent, starts fading away. And we really do feel stuck. I think that feeling stuck image is the first thing we should keep hold on to. And I think for many of us, especially those who deal with longstanding habits, that power of sin to make us be stuck is, is a really overwhelming one. Um, the coldness of it that we begin to lose any sort of feeling of connection with one another, all the pit of hell is about betrayal, betrayal of, of one another. Uh, and then betrayal of the people who are closest to us. When you get down to Satan, finally, you've gotten down to Satan and three characters in his mouths. Those who betrayed civil authority, Brutus and Cassius, who killed Julius Caesar, and Judas Iscariot. Um, Satan wanted to be like God. And in order to be like God, he he's given three faces as a sort of parody of the Trinity. But instead of being this source of all light and um, the truth, uh, he is entirely stupid. He's he's lost that image of God that he had, too. He's gone from being something glorious, the most glorious of the angels, to being this thing with bat-like wings. And all that he does is chew and chew and chew on these three sinners in his mouths, drooling while he chews crying while we choose and as he cries and drools he's freezing himself further and further in the ice trapping himself more and more there's nothing interesting about him he's like an empty shell and you get there and it's 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 consciously an anticlimax. you're expecting this great meeting with satan and you realize he's so close to nothing he's not interesting
0: I heard a lecture by Anthony Iselin on this last scene where he brought out that it is Satan's defiant flapping of his wings that is actually turning the waters into ice. Into ice. This seems to be a picture of the bondage of sin, the bondage of the will, where the defiance itself becomes part of the punishment of the sin.
1: He's providing the water and he's providing the refrigeration. He's doing it to himself. And, you know, that's really the big thing about Dante's Inferno, too. Often it's hard for us to imagine as Christians, that a God who loves us, a God who is love, would have a place of eternal punishment. What's he gonna do for all eternity? Sit around and throw thunderbolts at us? You know, is he really like constantly having to keep up this willing of, of pain for us? And the answer to that is no. God doesn't inflict that punishment. He allows that punishment to arise. But where does it arise from? It arises from ourselves, it comes from the sin itself. If I twist my ankle, it's going to swell up and hurt on its own. If I twist my soul, it's going to hurt on its own. And if I stay in that twisted state for eternity, it's going to hurt for eternity. I'm always impressed the first time I read the divine comedy that there weren't many demons running around with pitchforks. And that most people were just on their own suffering. And the, when the demons do come in with the with the, the or the, the fraudulent barriters. Um they're just there for comic relief. Uh, mm-hmm. They're like the Keystone Cops of hell, and uh, with a little bathroom humor thrown in. Uh, <laughs> but they're not the main source of the punishment. The punishment comes from, from within. And Dante's trying to let us see that, in one sense, we already have a little taste of that, of the fumes of hell, when we hold on to sin even now. The founder of my community, St. Philip Neri, from the 1500s used to say, he who holds on to a, a, a feeling of bitterness is already with the smell of hell. And um, and I, I think there is something like that, and that's what Dante wants to say, is you, know, you're, you're, you can get yourself stuck, and you're the source of your own punishment, and Satan is the perfect example of that. His own tears are frozen by the flapping of his wings, and still he keeps flapping.
0: There's also an interesting theology of speech. John's Gospel calls Christ the Logos, the Word. And this may relate to Satan not being allowed to speak at all.
1: And as you get further and further down into the pit, almost nobody speaks. The, the titans who have circled the final pit there um, are all basically mute. Um, and they were the crowning achievement of humanity. So they, they were going to build the tower and climb up to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, they're, they're drooling and beating their chests and blowing their bugles. And that's pretty much all they can do. So you see this, It's a. I think it's also an example of how when the f- greatest fall, they end up being the worst, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you see how much they abandoned, that this searching after sin was not searching after some sort of forbidden fruit that is going to make us happy, it's actually a losing of ourselves. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that it's something glorious, but in fact, it's, it's something extremely seedy and not very happy at all. And speaking of ladders, even Satan himself becomes a ladder. It as becomes part ladder, of Dante's that, Salvation. We see and the wonderful thing about that. I think is that everything that God allows to happen becomes a part of his plan. Mm-hmm. And when Satan arranges for Christ's betrayal through Judas and, gets all these things working, which came out so so powerfully in this, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson way back when. Um, when Satan realizes that God has used all of his planning to bring about the salvation of souls, and that Satan has been God's tool, God has used him. He screams. And I think there's something very similar to that happening here. Satan himself is being used by Virgil and Dante to get out of hell. And so it's It shows how somebody who rebelled from God, who said, you know, I'm not going to serve, ends up being a very menial staircase for these pilgrims who are getting out of hell.
0: For those who are ready to attempt to read the whole Divine Comedy for the first time, what translation would you recommend?
1: There are a lot of really, really fine translations. I've been using recently Anthony Esselin's, which is available through the Modern Library. And my books really do use those more directly, although I also really am fond of Alan Mandelbaum's recent translations. Um, I grew up, though, with John Sinclair, the Oxford University Press, which are a prose translation, but very good and have wonderful notes. And if you're intimidated by all the mythology and things and history, he lays it out for you very nicely. And he has a little little essay at the end of each each canto explaining what just went on. So I think if you, when I was reading it on my own, his books were very, very helpful. Some books are, are more, um, more lyrical. I mean, there's some great things. I have the Longfellow translation, which I don't think is particularly good actually, but um, I love Dorothy Sayers and John Chardy, both you know, two really fine writers and Chardy, a great poet, um, who I think did great justice to it. But in the end, I think I come down on the side of Esselin and Mandelbaum. Although one, uh, one final thing, I, I I'm also very fond of Mark Musa. His his translation is very fine, and I think his commentaries are very insightful. He's one that I, I actually read all the time to just to check on. Um, so you know, Mark Musa, Mandelbaum, and Esselin, those would be my, my top three. Yeah, and I think they're all they're all in, in English that people I think could could manage I think part of the difficulty with old translations of Dante were done in sort of a very difficult 19th century sort of English and um, I think that put people off whereas I think the, the these more recent translations are more approachable to a modern reader we I'm a in the community that John Henry Newman was part of. And one of our students was reading a text of John Henry Newman and asked the teacher whether we couldn't use a more recent translation of it. (laughs) I told him it wasn't a translation. It was just the way he wrote it. (laughs) And, and, uh, oh, my goodness, this is he wrote this in English this way. And I said, well, it was the 19th century. That's just what happened. So I think there are advantages to things that are closer to our own time and that have the advantage of generations of Dante um, translations to call upon. Um, so yeah, Anthony was very kind about writing the preface, the foreword to the first volume and, um, very grateful for that. And I got a lot out of his, his books too. He, I think all of those books too, Musa, Esselin in particular, um, or really try to embrace that Christian perspective. And I, I, would, did receive some real help from, from them in, uh, navigating this spiritual direction stuff.
0: Now, when do you think your volume on the Paradiso will be out?
1: Well, it's, it's at the editors now. Uh, I'm glad to say it's uh, been three years and three books. So I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> see the end of that for right now. Um, and so I'm hoping that it, it's, it will be out this summer. So it's, I, I really intend it to be out in time for the for the anniversary of Dante's death. Because this project is sort of, has sort of surrounded both the publication date um, of 1320 and, um, and then, so it was published in 1920 and 21, and then the death date. So I, which I have to admit was not my plan. That was just Providence. <laughs> so I had no, it didn't click with me until I was actually thinking about it. And then I went, oh my goodness, this is really good. This is, uh, so yes, I, so it should be out soon. It should be out soon. I warn people that as I get further and further in and it gets less and less visual. The books get a little longer because you need more explanation of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think that's particularly true in Paradiso, where most everything is just a sort of ongoing conversation, and the imagery needs more unpacking. There's less visual um, content, less clear dramatic narrative, and as a result, it it requires more theological unpacking. It's really great, and I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to read through it so many times, but it's harder to approach, and I can see why. Most people read the Inferno. Some people make it through the Purgatorio, but very few make it through all three. <laughs> so, um, it's it, They are increasing levels of difficulty. But I don't think that means that you shouldn't approach them. I think they are really something that everyday people can get something really splendid from. But you you need you do need help. Mm-hmm. And I hope that by reading Dante in the context of reading my book as well, you'll have the feeling of almost being in the class with us. and. I think part of doing spiritual reading um, is that you try not to read too quickly. I think we try to finish things off. These are very rich texts. And I've tried to divide most of the cantos into three, four, or five sections. And I give a little talk about some theme and spirituality that's going to be covered in that section. And then I'll go through the line-by-line commentaries. And I really encourage people just to read like one of those sections a day. If you're really encouraged to Push ahead, do a canto, but don't do more than that because you need time to take it in, to to let it sort of reverberate with yourself and make you feel uncomfortable (laughs) and uh, to, to give you time to react to it. Because spiritual reading isn't supposed to be just taking in information, it's supposed to be something that challenges you and makes you examine yourself in sort of the light of God. And so I think one of the great Defects of people's spiritual reading is that we read like we're cramming for a final exam um, instead of reading very slowly and chewing as we go. So the, the structure of my book is there to slow people down, to make them read more slowly. And, I, and it, I hope it will be a sort of guide for them for reading other books and taking them similarly slowly, because great books really do benefit from a slow digestion
0: a note to our listeners, we do plan on putting out a podcast for each of the three volumes by Father Pearson on each part of the Divine Comedy. So Purgatorio is next, and then Paradiso afterward. Stay tuned for those. Well, Father Pearson, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and to talk about the spiritual guidance of Dante in his Divine Comedy.
1: Very good. Well, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I always look forward to being able to share Dante with anybody.
0: All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.